in this space, God, in your love. That we have the freedom, we have the freedom to question and to imagine and to dream about the longings that you've put in our hearts. God, let our imaginations interact with your scriptures tonight as we try to see ourselves in its pages and understand our relationship with what you've created. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Danny and team for leading us in worship so far. Um, our reading tonight is from Romans chapter 8, is verses 18 to 27. It'll be on the screens behind me. It'll also be in uh, the Bibles there in the pews, the red ones. Um, I'll be reading from the New International Version. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. This ends the reading of the word of the Lord. My name is Drew. Uh, I'm one of the staff team here at Providencia, and it's my privilege to share with you this evening. Uh, there's a tree that stands in a black pot just at the corner of a slab of concrete behind our house. It now stands nearly six feet high, but when we got it as a baby tree, it was only about three feet tall. It's a tamarind tree tropical tree locally suited to South Florida, and true to its suitability, it has thrived over the past several months. Its branches are thin and pliable, soft wood that means even at its current adolescent stage, it can stand up to high winds and heavy rains, which we sometimes get in South Florida. Its leaves are tiny and delicate and fluttery, shifting and shimmering in the breeze as the sunshine bounces off of them. It's my favorite tree. It's local, and I would like to be local. 
It's tough and resilient, and I would like to be tough and resilient. It's simple and beautiful, and I would like to be simple and beautiful. And we got this tamarind tree at a community greening event several months ago. It was free. It was part of an initiative to regrow and reinstate the tree canopy of our city. If you're interested in that kind of thing, there's an opportunity this Wednesday at 6.30 as a part of a university event. You can see anyone on staff uh, if you want to hear more about that. As new residents in West Palm Beach, we didn't have very much connection to our city or our land. And this tamarind tree provided one of the first connections that we found. It's been part of our joy over the past year to watch our tree nearly double in size and begin to provide some shade to our backyard. My hope is that 5, 10, even 20 years from now, it will be 25 or 30 feet tall, providing shade for our house and our neighbor's house and maybe part of the street. That my kids and I might be able to lay underneath it and look up at the shimmering leaves as they dance in the wind and the sunlight and tell stories about that tree and our house and our city. This evening we're looking at the second of three passages that we chose to explore the theme of creation, to reimagine our perspective on creation, and to reimagine our participation in creation. Last week we started at the very beginning of Scripture. And we talked about the theologically imaginative work that the author of Genesis is doing in those opening lines. We thought about the wonder of this little phrase, God creates out of chaos. And in the midst of all that, there's a little breadcrumb that I want to pick back up to help us continue reimagining creation and our place in creation as we turn to Romans chapter 8. In discussing the idea of God creating, I said that God invites us into the flux of creativity. Not to be God or to play God or to lord it over the earth and all that lives in it, but instead to purposefully and respectfully join with all of creation in a chorus of groaning and pleading and praying for renewal. That chorus of groaning is what we see in Romans chapter 8. George Tinker, who I referenced last week, a Native American theologian, uh, says that Native American understandings of creation can provide a helpful corrective to our tendency as American Christians to objectify creation and to divorce ourselves from creation in unhealthy ways that make it permissible to exploit, abuse, diminish, and degrade creation. We need that reminder that God is God and everything else is not. And that everything else is in some sense unified under this banner of creation. There is creator and there is creation. 
And because of the connection that is inherent between all things in creation, there is a connection in our longing for renewal. This connection in longing and groaning is what Romans 8 brings to life. The beginning of this passage makes clear that the context Paul is speaking into the Apostle Paul, and the context into which Paul is injecting this imagery and theology of creation is one of suffering. The context is one of suffering. There's a recognition of present suffering, an awareness that things in this world are not as God intended them to be. And we only have to look around at our friends and family Look around at the stories we read in the news. Look inwardly at ourselves and our own stories. And wonder at the sheer mass of devastation and suffering in the world. We might think of the woman who was shot in her home less than two weeks ago by a police officer, a Tatiana Jefferson. She was playing video games with her nephew. We might think of the fact that the area of the world's forest that was destroyed in a single year is equal to twice the size of Portugal. We might think about the fact that agribusiness practices in the 20th and 21st centuries have resulted in over-fertilizing to the point that poisoned water supplies have created what biologists call dead zones. Like part of the Gulf of Mexico at the mouth of the Mississippi River, which is devoid of all sea life twice a year when this fertilizer seeps into the water supply. The devastation and suffering are all around us. And it's devastation that is getting worse. It is devastation the rate of which is growing. As a result of greenhouse gases trapped in our atmosphere, the planet is 1.5 degrees warmer over the past 100 years. That rate is higher than at least the last 11,000, according to climatologists. The evidence of that warming is seen in diminished global ice cover, in rising sea levels, and disappearing coastlines. It is appropriate for us to ask why. It's appropriate for us to lament because of our connection to all of creation. Now, this connection doesn't mean that we are exactly the same as the rest of creation. It doesn't mean that substantively humans are the same as rocks or trees. Throughout the Bible, this is made clear that humans have been set apart among creation as bearers of God's image. But this status as set apart and the purpose that God gave humanity in the act of creation, to be stewards of this gift of creation. We have distorted it in order to exploit and degrade creation, using whatever means might make us richer or might make our lives easier. And the rest of creation is crying out in frustration. 
under the weight of that exploitation. Listen to the chorus of groaning in this passage. Romans 8.22 says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. The whole creation groans. And then the very next verse, not only so, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. We groan. And then Romans 8.26, in the same way, the Spirit of God intercedes for us through wordless groans. The Spirit of God is groaning. The same verb is used in all three of these verses. Paul is pulling together a thread here that ties together humanity, the rest of creation, and the Spirit of God. In the intervening verses, Paul makes it clear that the frustration, the bondage, and suffering experienced by human beings is connected to the frustration, bondage, and suffering that creation is experiencing. Creation is groaning because it has been subjected to frustration, held in bondage to decay, and suffering as if in the pains of childbirth. These are all the same kinds of words that Paul uses throughout the book of Romans to describe humanity's enslavement under sin and death. Romans 5 and 6 depict humanity as powerless under a yoke of slavery, perpetuated by sin and death. Romans 5 and 6 show sin and death personified as forces that enter into the world, that reign as royal, kingly, oppressive figures and enslave as dictatorial masters. Now Romans 8 makes it clear that it was not just humanity that was put under a yoke of slavery, but creation too has been oppressed and bound because of the reign of sin and death. But creation doesn't sin, right? Trees are not held to a moral standard for their conduct. Rocks have no free will. So how or why is creation subjected to this slavery under sin and death? In some mysterious way, the entrance of sin and death into the world through humanity's rebellion against God has meant that the creation is unable to thrive in the way that God intended it to thrive. When we look back at Genesis 1, we see that God's original intention was good. That the original purposes and products of God's creation were good, even very good. And the implication of Romans 8 is that before sin and death reigned, none of creation was subjected to decay. It existed with infinite potential of flourishing. But humanity's rebellion resulted in bondage and slavery for the whole created universe. 
So here is where we find a theological argument for human responsibility for all of those horrible examples of devastation I mentioned earlier. Creation is in need of liberation precisely because humanity is in need of liberation. Just like creation's frustration, bondage, and suffering are tied to our frustration, bondage, and suffering, creation's liberation is tied to our liberation. Verse 19, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, in hope that it, creation, will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Yes, it is true that human decisions have made climate change worse and increased the devastation of our forests and oceans and species diversity. But Romans 8 is connecting the devastation and decay of creation to humanity's rebellion from the very beginning. Thankfully, it's not all doom and gloom in this passage. In tandem with this chorus of groaning in Romans chapter 8, we also hear, if we listen closely, a chorus of hope. Creation's bondage to decay is connected to and a result of our bondage to sin and death. But creation's renewal is also connected to our renewal. Remember, our passage begins with a recognition of suffering, but it also immediately points to a coming glory that will be revealed. And all the way through the passage, there is a tension between suffering and glory, between lament and joy, between groaning and hope. Amid the suffering and groaning in this passage, there is eager anticipation, anxious waiting, hope for the coming freedom and glory, a full and final adoption of ours into God's family, a redemption of our bodies, and a renewal of all things. All this hope is possible because of Jesus. Just a few verses before our passage in Romans 8 verse 10, it says, But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. There is despair. If we think that on our own, humanity can repair the devastation of sin or the devastation in creation, we can't and we won't. There is hope that Jesus can and will. This is the essential foundation of any Christian environmental ethic. And it does not mean that we can just throw our hands up and let the devastation continue because Jesus will eventually repair it all. That would be exactly the same as throwing our hands up and saying, let's keep sinning 
Let's keep living unhealthy lives. Let's keep destroying ourselves and the people around us because Jesus will eventually wipe it all away. Paul explicitly rebukes that kind of thinking in Romans 6 verse 1 and verse 15. No, we don't throw our hands up in despair or resignation. Instead, we eagerly wait. This phrase is used twice in this passage, once with creation as the subject. Creation waits in eager expectation, and once with humanity as the subject. Creation, uh, sorry, sorry, we ourselves wait eagerly for our adoption. The word picture for this verb is an amazing one. One of the prominent places outside of the New Testament where this word is used is in Aeschylus' tragedy Agamemnon. Some of you, I'm sure, have read it in humanities class. The Greek armies, Agamemnon's armies, have been fighting a war against the city of Troy for years. And there is one watchman whose job it is to stand on the city wall and peer into the distance for the appearance of the Greek ships returning from war. Even more than that, the watchman was especially waiting to see the armies return with torches blazing atop the mass of the ships. Because those torches blazing was the signal that Troy had fallen, that the Greek armies were victorious. Day after day, night after night, the watchman stood on the city wall and stared eagerly waiting for that light of hope. It reminds me a little bit of when I was a kid. When I was young, my dad worked outside the house, my mom worked inside our house, and so I was always, as a little kid, waiting for dad to get home from work. And in our front window, which was a big window, we had one of those half curtains you know what I'm talking about? Curtain bar sort of halfway up the window, and it stood about this high. And so if I, as a young boy, got up on the windowsill, I could easily see over the top of the curtain bar and see when Dad came back home. The trouble was that my mom said that we couldn't stand on the windowsill. So that meant that in order to see over the curtain bar, I had to get as high on my tiptoes as I could and put my little hands on the curtain bar and just barely be able to peer over the top and see when dad got home. This is the word picture of this Greek verb eagerly waiting in anticipation. This is the kind of hope that we are called to in the midst of groaning in Romans chapter 8. But how might we put this kind of hope into action? Two ways come to my mind. First, we need to recognize or perhaps re-recognize our connection to the land. Similar to the way George Tinker, the Native American theologian, speaks of our connection to the rest of creation, Black theologian Willie Jennings speaks of connection to place, to land, 
as a fundamental and primary way of forging our identity. Without a connection to the land, to our place, to where we're from, a person has severe difficulty forming a healthy identity. We need to foster an awareness of our place, of our connection to this part of creation that we interact with, that we are even dependent on, on a daily basis. Can we work together toward the flourishing and renewal of this little part of creation that we live in? Can we foster that connection between hoping for our own redemption and hoping for the repair of creation? Secondly, I think we need to get specific. One of the things that I have seen in churches over the last decade is a willingness to admit that we have not done so well in fulfilling our role as stewards of the gift of creation. Lots of churches are willing to admit this, lots of Christians, but we like to keep it general and vague. We should do better. We should recycle more. We should care for the environment. Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor notes that when Wendell Berry talks about creation, he hates to use the vague term environment. Instead, he prefers to talk about trees and insects and soil, things that we can see and work with with our hands. Wendell Berry is suspicious of abstractions because he knows what hides behind abstractions hypocrisy and greed. One way to avoid such hypocrisy in, and greed is to get specific. Find your tamarind tree and see in it, see in its flourishing your own flourishing. Find something concrete to hope and work for, like the shimmering delicate shade of a 30-foot tall tamarind. Push your hands into the soil and work it with your fingers. Hold out your hands to the branches and let the wind brush the leaves in and out of your grasp. Give thanks for its beauty. Give thanks for the sunshine and the rain that nourish it and ultimately, finally, Worship the Creator who made both you and it. The Creator whose spirit groans and hopes intimately with us as we wait for renewal and restoration. This hope, then, this idea of waiting in eager anticipation is not inactive. Just like we look toward the coming of God's kingdom in all its fullness. And we believe that we can participate even now in the coming of that kingdom. In the realization of the flourishing of all. We believe that the renewal of creation is on the horizon. And we believe that we can participate even now in the coming 
of that renewal. Let's pray.